everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Thanks for tuning in again this week. we got some great news for you. we got a wonderful interview with Jamie Williams from the Electronic Frontier Foundation talking about vehicle-to-vehicle communications. What could possibly go wrong? So in our today's show, we're going to talk about a few different things. We're going to talk a little bit about password managers and a really interesting feature from a, a company called 1Password uh, called Travel Mode that lets you hide passwords while you're traveling. And we're going to dive in a little bit on this Fireball adware. You may have seen this one in the news. And I'm going to tell you all about it, tell you how to fix it, and tell you why it's so bad. Then we're going to have a wonderful interview with Jamie Williams from the EFF, as I said. And we'll wrap it up with a tip of the week. So first up, let's talk a little bit about password managers. Now, that's something we talk about in this show quite a bit because it's extremely important uh, for your security. And it's something that, honestly, we all should be using. So we're going to talk about 1Password. 1Password is a company that has a very interesting and a, a very well-reviewed password manager system. And again, a password manager, basically what you do with a password manager is you just have to come up with one master password. And, and, and we've talked about ways to come up with really good master passwords, something you can remember, but it's hard to guess. So that's it. You only have to come up with one really good one. And then the password manager will generate for you these crazy random passwords with all the multiple characters and numbers and upper and lower case and funny symbols and all these things, as long as you want, uh, 20 characters, 25 characters, it'll go as big as you want. Uh, some sites actually limit you, which is kind of a shame, but anyway, it, it, the password manager then remembers all these for you. And if you've got the right, you know, the right browser plugin for this tool, when you go to the websites, you don't even have to type them in, uh, the password manager fills them in for you. It looks at what website you're on and says, Oh yeah, I know the password for that site. I generated it. Here it is. Uh, fills it in for you. You don't have to remember. You don't have to even know what it is. It just It's just magic. So 1Password uh, came up with a very interesting feature uh, last week or the week before called Travel Mode. And this is to address the issue that we brought up with the EFF uh, in an interview earlier on this year, where at the border, uh, the U.S. Border Patrol, and honestly, uh, other countries as well, are asking people to unlock phones um, and unlock laptops and devices and t for inspection. And if they do that and they can get access to your password manager, now they have access to every website, every service that you have a password for. So given this uh, rather alarming trend in, in border security, what what one password has done is they have created this system where you go into your password vault. That is the, the, the vault that has contained all these wonderful, unique generated passwords for all your websites. And you mark them as safe for travel or not. And if they are not safe for travel, let's say these are things, perhaps you work for a company and you don't want some of your company corporate passwords being available to hackers. If your device gets stolen, uh, for example, um, you can mark these, passwords as not safe for travel. And then when you go into one password and you say, I'm about to travel, it removes all those passwords from all of your devices, not just hides them, not just tries to make them invisible. They're actually removed. They are not present on your devices anymore. Of course, that means that while you're traveling, you have no access to those services or websites or whatever they are. You, you can't get to those passwords either. That would defeat the purpose. So the point of this is if you're worried about Somebody getting into your devices while you're traveling. You set up this feature. You mark the you mark the ones that you don't want to be on your device, and you say just remove those. Now let's talk about the, the downside of this, however, and this is where I think this falls apart. So while while the feature in practice sounds wonderful and it's 
it's probably worth trying. Um, really, it only helps you, I think, in the case of theft uh, or in the case of malicious actors. Here's the issue. So, great, they're removed from your devices. They don't have access to them. If somebody opens your phone, even if it's a border patrol agent and says, you know, open up your password manager for me, they will not see any of these entries. The problem is, depending on what these entries are, first of all, it might be rather obvious when that the that some are missing. You know, you go out and wait a minute, you don't have a Facebook account or a Twitter account or a Gmail account or any of these other very popular accounts. Pinterest, you don't have any of those. You know, they might find that suspicious. And because one password is doing this, and because border patrol agents are good at their job and they know these things are happening, all the border patrol agent has to do is say, are you in travel mode right now? And if you, you need to answer truthfully. And that's the problem. You never want to lie to a border patrol agent. As soon as you lie and they believe you're lying, first of all, it's probably some sort of a criminal offense. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm guessing that's bad if they can prove that you lied. Second, as soon as it becomes a hostile scenario where they think you're trying to hide something, then you get to be in a whole other category of search. So while I think the feature is very interesting and I think it would be great in terms of having a, maybe a lost device or a stolen device, while you're traveling, if you, you know, not making those passwords available, the practical use of this as, you know, let's say you're a journalist or a whistleblower or just a concerned citizen that likes your privacy and you want to try to hide these things from the border patrol, this, this particular technique probably won't help you. If they ask you, uh, if you're in travel mode and you say yes, because you don't want to lie, then they can just say, okay, log into one password and turn off travel mode. And then all of a sudden those passwords come right back. So anyway, it's a very interesting feature. I think it's great that companies like this are trying to find ways to help protect you. Uh, but unfortunately, right now, it's from a practical standpoint, it's, it's not as useful as it might seem. All right, and one more news item that I'd like to cover this week before we get to our wonderful interview with Jamie Williams at the EFF. So you may have seen this in the news, uh, but I wouldn't doubt if you probably missed this one. It was called Fireball. Uh, it's being called Adware as opposed to malware, which... And, honestly, to me is the same thing. But adware is something that infects your system. And what it really does is force extra advertisements onto you or perhaps does extra tracking or both uh, in hopes of making ad revenue. So this particular product called Fireball comes from a company in China uh, called Rafotech, R-A-F-O-T-E-C-H. And what they've basically done is bundled some of their adware, crapware, malware with regular installers for other programs. And so when you go to some sites, and I don't necessarily want to pick any ones in particular, but you know what the, these sites are. These are download sites, and these are sites that claim to have all the downloads you need. And when you go to search on something you want to download, it's usually one of the top search results. And they offer these downloads for you with, you know, helpful ratings and things like that. And perhaps even alternatives that you could look at if you want to look at other software, et cetera, et cetera, ratings and all that. So what they don't tell you is that these companies, just like all the ad companies, they need to make money somehow and, and they can't make it with free stuff. So what happens in a lot of these cases, and this, this used to plague Java, uh, when, if you ever installed Java, used to, uh, they used to do it there. They will bundle other things with the installer. So you, you go to download, let's say, Java. And when you install Java, all of a sudden, you get Ask Jeeves as your default web search uh, on your browser. And it's like, you didn't put that there. You didn't ask to put that there. But if you had carefully looked at the Java installer, somewhere along the line, there was a little checkbox that said something like, 
express install or something like that, where basically you let us make all the decisions for you and you just sit back and relax and we'll, we'll take care of it. And what that really means is if you uncheck that box and say, I want to do a custom install or advanced install, which usually, you know, scares off most people, you know, oh no, I just went simple. Well, if you go for simple, then they take the liberty of doing a lot of things you didn't want to, you didn't want them to do. And so what these other companies do, like Ask Jeeves and things like that back in the day, is they would pay these companies. It's like, well, if you slip my installer in with your installer, we'll give you money for every one you do. And so it, if you'd gone into the custom installer, the advanced installer, whatever, you would have seen an option that says, yes, please install Ask Jeeves and make that my default web search. Uh, it was buried, and and so if you'd gone in and unselected that, you wouldn't have gotten it, but you didn't know that. And that's if they're being nice. Uh, a lot of these installers don't even ask, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure which particular installers um, and had the Fireball adware in it, but th they did the same kind of thing. So they went to these other companies and said, we want you to slip our stuff in with their stuff. So when you go to this downloader and you install it, and you're going to install our stuff as well. And the upshot is is what this particular uh, malware does, is it modifies your default start page. So when you hit the home button and bring up a brand new page, it probably goes to the Rafatech search engine. It changes your default search engine to be the Rafatech search engine. And it uses all sorts of tracking stuff to collect information about you and your browsing habits. So, it, you know, is it creepy? Sure, it's creepy. Is it bad? You know, you can argue about whether or not it's bad. But the problem with this software is it's on 250 million Computers. This adware has shown up on 250 million computers worldwide. That is massive. And because it's currently just adware, it's not getting a whole lot of attention. Uh, but it really should be because it's doing a lot of things that are really bad and it could get a whole lot worse. So, for instance, let's say these guys making money uh, on ads decide they want to start making money with something else. This, this, this software that's installed on the computers will actually be able to install new software uh, without asking your, for your permission. So that right there is a showstopper. That tells you right then and there that you've got to get rid of this thing. Um, because just because all they're doing right now is is taking over your search engine and tracking your, your your what you click on, tomorrow it could be much, much worse. But let's say let's let's even say that Rafatech is, is is happy to stick with what they have and just make money off of these clicks and referrals and 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 information about you. What if they get hacked? So what if somebody uh either hacking group or a foreign government gets into their systems and uses their software to distribute true malware. Um, it, it could be game over very quickly. And by that, I mean, when you've got 250 million uh, computers out there acting as a botnet, you could do a lot of damage, um, not only to the 250 million computers that were infected, but they could then turn around and focus their attention on many other computers. So anyway, bad thing. So I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes that you can check out that will tell you how to see whether or not, or try to figure out whether or not you've got this uh, adware installed and then how to remove it. So please check that out. Come to the website. Uh, it, it's a little hard to explain on the air. So go to the website and I'll, and I'll tell you everything you need to do to, to try to find this, uh, this stuff and see if you've got it. I will tell you quickly, uh, a quick tip. Obviously, if you're seeing the Rafatech search engine, you're in trouble. Uh, you should be checking your browser plugins, all your browsers, not just the one you use. If you've got multiple browsers installed, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, Edge, uh, check all their add-ons and extensions and poke around and make sure there's nothing in there that looks like something you did not want installed. That's a good spring cleaning task to do anyway. If you feel you're infected uh, or if you want some more information on how to check that, go check the link on the website and I'll tell you how to, how to look for the right things and how to remove it if you find it. All right, and now it's time for our interview with uh, Jamie Williams. Thank you. 
You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com to get all the latest, make it a daily stop, and also get the app. You go right to the App Store and download our free app, and that will put all our content right into your hands on your phones and your tablets. It doesn't get any easier than that. promised with me today is jamie williams she's a staff attorney at the electronic frontier foundation one of my all-time faves uh and she is part of the eff civil liberties team and focuses on the privacy and free speech implications of emerging technologies how are you great thanks for having me yeah thank you very much for coming i'm really looking forward to this talk because it's something that i bet a lot of people just have not thought about and it's it's kind of new it's kind of different and it's i think it's in a lot of ways very cool so we'll talk about the good and then we'll talk about the bad and the ugly so uh, you wrote recently uh, wrote an article, and that's why I reached out to you about uh, vehicle to vehicle communications, and you know, short term, you know, for short, V to V. So, yep. let's start a little bit. Tell us, tell us what that is, why that's cool, why we like it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't actually know if we like it too much. Um, I think <laughs> some people might like it. The idea, at a general level, is to have cars be able to, as V2V means vehicle-to-vehicle communications, like you said, so that at a high level is having cars be able to talk to each other. So you can send safety messages back and forth. So NHTSA and I think a lot of the um, traditional car manufacturers who have been kind of thinking about this for a long time, they're, I think, the ones who think who want this and think it's a good idea. But there's a lot of people who think it's not a great idea. Um, it's not necessarily a terrible idea if the privacy and security issues are worked out, but that's going to be really expensive to do. And um, because of the nature of this technology, every single vehicle, um, well, the more vehicles that, ha- that have this technology, the more useful it will be. So if one car had vehicle-to-vehicle technology, it would be completely useless because no other <laughs> cars on the road. That's one V. You need at least two Vs. <laughs> yeah, well, you need at least two, but then, like, what are the chances of you and that car driving along right. together for your entire life, right? Like, it's not going to happen. So so this is called network effect, where the, num- the value of the technology is dependent on the number of people that use it, and this is an incredibly huge network effect. So there's going to be no benefit from this technology until basically 30, 30, 33 to $75 billion has been spent. Wow. And that by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's own estimates, the or agency that's that's pushing this forward, um, and that's that's not even considering all the privacy and safety issues that have yet to be resolved in the costs associated with that. So we at EFF don't actually want it, at least not in its current state. And as part of our comments that we submitted to um, to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, we noted not only that the V2V presents privacy and security risks, but also that it just doesn't make sense from a practical cost-benefit perspective. So let's back up a little bit. So why do I want yeah. this at all? What, what, are the, what are the applications of this? What is this as, as a driver or a consumer or even as a government? What, why do I want this at all? What is this doing for me? NHTSA wants this because they, um, the, the agency, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, wants this because it sees this as a way to reduce accidents on the road. So um, a vehicle will be able to send a message to another vehicle saying, I'm going to come to a complete stop soon. 
just FYI, you should stop too if you're behind me, or I'm going to change lanes, heads up over there, I'm going this fast, and I'm coming up behind you, things like that. And there's multiple ways that you can get that information between cars, and one of them would be having the cars talk to each other without any intermediaries. So is this something that's going to be mandated by the government? Like all cars must have this, and then it's just going to take a matter of time for that for the for the vehicle population to to age out, and the newer ones will have it, and we'll get to the critical mass point. Is is, is this going to be a regulation? Exactly, that... exactly. Yeah, that's what the per, the proposal is going to be, or that's what I think they're trying to to push forward with. Um, but but yeah, it's going to take a long time to get this in cars, and then. By the time some older, some new, by the time we're getting to that stage where a lot of cars have it, where it's finally having some beneficial impact, by the time that actually starts happening, all of the earliest cars that had this, their technology is going to break. They're going to need new stuff. So it's 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 very clunky. So I know that our you know our government is not exactly quick on the uptake when it comes to when it comes to new technologies, and they they seem to be constantly you know trying to catch up. And I've got to think, and because I know some people in the industry, that that autonomous vehicles, uh, that is self-driving cars, is, is really seems to be where the hot is, where the hot technology is now. And it seems like that would sort of, I don't know if that dovetails with this or if that replaces this. Is there how do how do those two things? No, work not together? at all. This is just for this is for connected cars in general. Um, and a lot of the I, you don't need this for connected cars. There's the cars should be able to drive themselves with their sensors. I think this is kind of an add-on thing that all cars could potentially have, but um, but I think that a lot of the tech companies working on the autonomous vehicles, are, they don't necessarily like this because they recognize that it introduces a huge security and privacy hmm issue more so security i mean if you're if you're manufacturing the car and if you're if you're operating the car um the security risks are something that you really care about because i mean no computer no computer system is completely secure and Mm -hmm. and having i mean we're going to talk about this later um but this is not a very secure way to go about doing it so you see tech companies um opposing this this is not necessary for autonomous vehicles and if they mandate it, it will just be another thing that they kind of have to jump through. But I don't even know if they'll. Gotcha. All right. So let's 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 talk about some of those aspects. Let's get into the the privacy and the security stuff, and let's start with privacy. So that being your bailiwick, your wheelhouse. Let's when we're so basically what we have here is we we have it's sort of like the Internet of Things on the road, right? It's 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 all it all of a sudden these vehicles that were now kind of independent little little things driven by somebody are now talking to each other and perhaps even talking to the internet. So. With that comes, and we just had an episode on the Internet of Things, so the uh, the listeners will be aware of some of the, the issues there. A lot of the same themes come into play here. But from a privacy standpoint, let's talk to the first. What mm-hmm. the the technology that that enables these vehicles to talk to each other? How does that end up tripping on privacy issues? When the cars are talking to each other, in order for one car to be able to kind of understand where that information is coming from. They have to know which car it is, right? And so there, there needs to be this, like, knowledge of who's actually sending um, the information built into the system. So the NHTSA has proposed that, well, and then if you're doing that, though, there's a problem. Like, if, if I was broadcasting 
my location to you at all times. You would know it was coming from me, which was great because you know you can trust me. Um, or you, you just know, like, oh, it's coming from this person over here. They're saying they're doing this. Um, but if I was con- constantly broadcasting what I was doing to everyone all over, that would be infinitely trackable. So NHTSA's plan is to have rotating certificates and try to adopt this kind of complicated certificate authority system, kind of like, but more complicated than the one that the the internet uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their plan is to give each car 20 certificates per week and rotate through them every five minutes. But um, the problem is, is that 20 numbers isn't that much for a computer computer to keep track of, but it's I mean, it's not that much for a human being to keep track of, but it's... Trivial for a computer. Yeah, it's trivial for a computer to keep track of 20 different numbers. Um, It'd be very easy to do this. So I think one of the issues with the V2V plan is their um, threat model, which is the the way they're thinking about who's actually going to be using this information and what are the risks associated with this information, they seem to kind of assume that no one's going to want to engage in systematic tracking of people. (laughs) But um, we know that's not the case. There's already a huge industry, right, of people trying to get license plate data and kind of track who's parked where at all times. And it's called automated license plate readers, um, there's, a, there's litigation going on around this. There's a, there's yeah, so we will definitely talk about that. Are, yeah, and so there's cities who are are installing this. There's private companies who are driving around with cars. I mean, there's there's a lot of investment being paid in this, and there's I mean, there's at least two big companies who are just collecting this data and aggregating this data as private entities, and then because it's very, I mean, the more data you have about someone, the more valuable that data becomes because it just paints a a very detailed picture of a person's life and location data is incredibly sensitive. It tells you where you work. It tells you your life patterns. You right. can tell if you have kids, if you go to the gym, if you stay out late. Um, Drop by your mistress's house on the way home from work. Exactly. All this stuff. So like who would want this information? Like, I mean, so people are going to, there's going to be companies that, that, put up the um, the resources and go through the process to figure out how to track these things and do it and then sell that information to all sorts of people who might, anyone who might want to buy it, right? So data aggregators, um, advertisers who know you're going to like this grocery store instead of that grocery store and want you to um, come over. That's just an example. Insurance companies and not just mm-hmm. car insurance, but also health insurance, right? If you're going to the gym or if you're staying out too late. <laughs> They might want to know. Um, it's because this is like your every detail about your daily life. So everyone wants to know this. Current employers, potential employers, law enforcement, of course, spouses, ex-partners, um, private investigators, all right. sorts of people. Anyone and anyone. So Everyone and anyone. <laughs> I like to think of this in terms of analogy. So for me, it, it, to explain these things, so what we're trying to what what they're trying to do in terms of what problem they're solving with this these certificates, which is sort of like a, a license, right? So it's like a like a human. It might be like your driver's license. So it says that you are who you say you are, and you're at least eighteen, so you can buy alcohol. Let's say we're, we're, they're trying to validate yeah, and, and yeah, make sure that's that, all it does is that you are who you say you are. Yeah, and so not based, necessarily that you could be trusted, but just right. you are who you say you are. So that some, you know, there's some not some rogue vehicle out there that's trying to 
you know, generate a lots of misinformation and cause accidents or, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, and that's, and that's kind of the issue with this is that another part of the problem is that knowing who you say you are doesn't necessarily know that you're a good person who's not trying right. to cause accidents. So the issue is really not that it's, it's not even so much that these, you know, these rotating certificates, these, these rotating licenses that, that, that your car is going to be picking up once a week is necessarily tied directly to you, but that your car is generating a unique set of 20, 20 IDs that if any yeah. computer was watching that, they would quickly be able to say, okay, this car has these 20 IDs. So anytime I see these 20 IDs, that's this car. And then it's, a, it's just a step from that point to figure out, okay, well, whose, whose car is that, right? Or Well, yeah, but actually I think like, it's easier to figure out who you are from your location patterns than who your car and like which car it is, right? Because it's mm. not like associated with the license plate at all. Um, there's studies that have shown that if you have just four temporal location data points, so like where they were at what time, just four um, points, you can identify 95% of the population. Yeah, I've um, heard that. Because of people super, like everyone, our patterns are are pretty basic. We do a lot of the same things every day. Um, assuming you're not on vacation, right, you're, you're, the daily patterns of your week are pretty consistent yeah. for a lot of people, right? So, so I, think, I think knowing where your car is, if, assuming you were the one in the car the whole time, means that they know where you are. So who, who actually would want, I mean, other than the purposes of, obviously, the, the original purpose, which is trying to make the roads safer, who else would want to track us, and who 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 else would hold this information? How long would they hold it? Do we have access to it? Does it ever get flushed? Does, can law enforcement access it? Who, how do we control this yeah, information? Yeah. So, okay. So the cars, the car, if the cars are sending information to each other, um, I'm not I'm not sure exactly like if the car companies and the car operators how they would be storing this data if they would be keeping a copy of it and sending it to themselves. But what we're concerned about is third parties who set up receiving, I mean, because these cars are driving and transmitting these messages. So you could just set up a device that receives these messages and stores them in. Um, and if you have these set up in enough locations, you can get a ton of data in um, and analyze it and figure out who's what and who's where. Um, and so the people who do that, I mean, are similar maybe to the private companies that drive around and collect license plate um, data with the automated license plate readers. And then they would be able to share that information with whoever they wanted to. You don't know who they are because you don't necessarily, um, you have no relationship with them. You don't, they, they don't have a privacy policy where they promise mm. not to share this data with anyone. Um, they just collected it and can and will share it with the like the list I went through before, so maybe data aggregators who just want to amass as much data about people as possible, including their location information, in addition to their um, web browsing history, for instance, or advertisers in general, specific ones who are looking for people at this location, so they could advertise to them about going to the the same kind of store, a different a different brand or something like that. Um, yeah, insurance companies, health insurance, car insurance employers, potential employers, law enforcement. It seems like we, are, to some degree, the, the cat's already out of the bag on, on a lot of this stuff because we already, for instance, my car, I've got an easy pass thing on my car. So I've already got mm -hmm. a device on my car that when queried will cough up some sort of identifier. And I'm sure that there are, are probably rogue devices that will that could do that for all these cars. And you talked about 
we haven't talked yet about traffic cams and public video systems, but uh, those along with automatic license plate readers. And I'd like to get into that a little bit because that's I think that's really interesting. I think a lot of people are probably not aware of that. Is is it is it already game over anyway? Is this just are, are we aren't we already at danger of being tracked? Well, I think I mean with the Easy Pass toll readers and also with the automated license plate readers, those are far less. I mean, this is the V to V would be spewing out way more information about you, and it would be way more easier to it would be way easier to track um, to to take in that information, to use that information, to analyze that information and track it. So basically, V2V is handing people an even easier way to track you. So sure, there's ways um, to track you online. But for instance, automated license plate readers, that's by they need a direct line of sight to the license plate to be able to read that. You wouldn't need that with V2B, so it would be infinitely easier to um, mm. record uh, the messages coming out of a car. They call them basic safety messages or BSMs. It would be all you would need is, is one little device to do that, not a, a, a giant camera attached to the car that has inherent limitations based on needing a direct line of sight. Um, and with the easy pass, yeah, I mean, I think A, that's not mandatory. B, there's definitely, I think everyone in EFF who has one of these has like a little bag that they put the thing in <laughs> when they're not, I yeah. mean, it's not like, it's not purposely sending out messages tw 24 hours a day as or constantly right. as you're driving, right? So this is just going to be a way for people to really easily track people's location in a very highly systematic way. So let's talk a little bit about the automated license plate readers. I know it's a little bit uh, off the V2V topic, but it's another similar tracking thing that I think uh, certainly has me really alarmed. Uh, and that is, explain what that is, how it's being used, and, and if there's any control over its use today at all. Yeah, so the automated license plate readers, or ALPR, um, they're, like I was saying before, they're devices that read license plates um, and just basically record that. And you can associate the license plate with the car, with the vehicle and the vehicle's owner. And you can, and these, these cameras record where they are and when they're there, right? So that's a proxy to, to where you're going at all times. You can use them to track and find people. And they're used for all sorts of purposes. I think, um, for instance, LA has these, um, recorded or these devices installed around the city. Um, EFF has filed a FOIA request or Public Records Act request rather for the information about how much they had. I think we asked for about a week's worth of data and, and just basically to see what they're collecting and what information they have about people because there's definitely not a lot of insight and oversight into what, what um at least governmental entities are doing when they have this information. But then you also have private companies who are making a concerted effort to go out and collect as much of this information as possible to share it with whoever they want, including law enforcement. Hmm. And I, so I know that law enforcement, for example, one of the, one of the uses the, that I've heard that the law enforcement is they'll actually, they'll just take cops and they'll, they'll drive them through parking lots, uh, particularly airport parking lots, because a lot of times they're looking for uh, either you know, criminals that, that they happen to know what car they drive or stolen vehicles. Uh, are there any other, what are the, is, is that the most common, I guess, stated purpose for these sorts of technologies or, or, or are they using it for other purposes as well? I, I honestly don't know. I know that, um, 
I, I do know that there's the two main private companies that are using this. The, it's One is DNR and one is NDTRAC. Um, and they hire contractors to go out and collect license plate data from cars. And they have, um, apparently DNR's database contains over 2 million documents. And they've definitely been known to share their information with law enforcement. I'm not sure under what circumstances. Um, or for what cases, but I, and I guess they also share it. I mean, not just with law enforcement, but also with, for instance, like one use of this might be um, repo, right? When you mm, like, some, yep. they're looking for a car. Um, banks, insurance companies, credit reporting agencies. So speaking of insurance companies, this is something I've always wondered about, and I don't know if you know about this or not, but I'm curious. It, so I, there's a lot of in car insurance agencies that are selling you those little dongles that you can put these little nuggets that you can put on your mm -hmm. car on the, which basically is a black box for your car, but it's tracking, it's, it's tracking your habits, how fast you go and, and things like that. I'm not actually sure all what it tracks. The point being you're volunteer, you voluntarily put this in your vehicle mm -hmm. to kind of proclaim I'm a good driver. Um, what I've, there's gotta be privacy implications to those devices. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I mean, this is, but again, you're, you, you said it, you're voluntarily agreeing to put this. I'm sure those devices have privacy policies, which... I'm sure they are, too. I just bet they're help. awful. <laughs> yeah, they are awful. I mean, I don't have one in my car. Nor do I. I. have a super old 1987 Volvo, so I don't have any computer in my car. But those are things that people are voluntarily putting in, and they're maybe doing it for a, a little bit of money each month. And so for me, what really just... Drives me nuts. I was about to use some profanity. What, what, what really makes me angry is is that we just we don't own uh, two things. First of all, we don't seem to own our data. Uh, it, it's, and second, people are just so willing to give up uh, privacy without even considering the implications for saving a little bit of money. But what about what about the data ownership thing? So there's there's like in the U.S. It's just so loose and, and, and it's so corporatist. The government basically says hands off, particularly this administration, I would think. You can do whatever you want. They just did this recently with the ISPs, allowing them to collect and sell your data there. And compare that to the EU and, and the, uh, what do they call it, the, uh, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Yeah, the EU has a big general data privacy law that protects consumers. The U.S. does not have that. Um, instead, we have all these isolated privacy laws that protect X kind of information. So everyone's probably heard of HIPAA that mm -hmm. um, protects medical information, health information. Um, there's a law that protects the privacy of financial data, um, but there's no overarching law. So a lot of this falls under um, the FTC to regulate based on companies' business practices, whether they have unfair or deceptive business practices, because if they do, then the FTC can go after them. So in the U.S., a lot of the times that means, are you complying with what you say in your privacy right. policy? So if the company says, I promise not to do X with data, and they do it, they violate that, then, then they can get in trouble with the FTC. So it doesn't restrict what they can do, it just restrict other than what they claim to be doing. Yeah, I mean, if there's no law that applies, they can do whatever they want unless they they promise explicitly not to. Um, and some companies do promise that. Um, EFF actually has a annual report called Who Has Your Back, which does an analysis of the, the privacy policies 
of a lot of big tech companies. But a lot of the times you, you companies give you a right to say, hey, I want a copy of my data. So is there any is there any prayer? Is there any appetite for this in the in the United States Congress for these sorts of laws? I would I would have to think that if you pose this to any particular constituent, they would say, yeah, yeah, I'd like my privacy protected, but, and yet nothing happens. And, and whereas in the EU, I don't, I don't know if this was demanded by the populace or if the government finally just said, you know what, people should own their, you know, have a lot more control of their data. For whatever reason, we're not doing that here. Is, is, is there any hope for that in this country? Um, I think that would be overly optimistic given <laughs> what our Congress can get done. I think potentially, I mean, we had, I think, I think the, going along the current path proposing legislation that protects privacy of X kind of information, there may be hope for that still. Um, but like a general, it, it just would be a completely revamping our system, which I, which I would be shocked to see anything like that. I mean, one difference between the EU, I mean, the EU generally puts privacy at a much higher priority gives it much more priority than the U.S. does in other ways, too. I mean, um, in terms of speech versus privacy, they view they view privacy and dignity kind of hand-in-hand hand mm. a little bit in a way that we don't – our legal system doesn't, doesn't have that same respect for. So we put the First Amendment as, like, we have the strongest First Amendment where they may have strong privacy, and that's why you get these right-to-be-forgotten issues that are popping up, too, which – may have been the topic already on your podcast. <laughs> no, that would be a good one. Yeah, so we've, we've, we've talked about privacy. Uh, we haven't talked about security that much. What, what, are, the, what are the security issues around the, the VDV communications? What, what do we have to worry about there? The, the, in security, you always talk about a threat model, right? So yeah. what, what, are, what, are the, what are the dangers, what are the exposures, what are the chinks in the armor that, that uh, this technology might be exposing? Well, all cars are all connected cars, all cars that have computers in them are not going to be 100% secure. No computer system is, right? Mm -hmm. And so the issue is trying to reduce the number of these. Via V introduces another entire surface of attack. So if your car is communicating only with like one ISP, which is responsible for assessing which messages come through it and which are safe and which which should be trusted and all these other things, um, that's one place of communication. It's like the Apple phone. If you can only get updates from Apple, only from one place, Apple can verify your phone is only allowed to take to take updates from Apple. It won't update from anything else. So it's really hard to get bad stuff onto your phone, basically. Mm. Um, so, but if all of a sudden, if you let anyone send updates or messages to your phone, that would be an entire new surface of attack, right? So that's what we're talking about with cars. If other cars are able to talk to it, you're getting messages from all these other people at all times, and it's this way to get in and attack the car that did not exist before. Gotcha. Yeah, it, 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 for me, it's very similar to the Internet of Things discussion that we had last week, and, and that is as soon as you – it's one th the first step, as you say, is, is to be computerized. It's going from something that's dumb to something that's smart. The next thing is to make it connected, a ubiquitous connection, because now all of a sudden you don't have to be near the vehicle. You could be anywhere on the planet. For instance, there was the, the, the story that was run in Wired magazine not that long ago about – I think it was a couple years back – about somebody being able to remotely hack a Jeep – uh, uh, which and not mm -hmm. just uh, they initially did you know did some windshield wiper stuff and changed their dashboard, but eventually they were actually able to stop the vehicle in the middle of the road. 
so th- there are real, very real risks to, to, to these sorts of security problems. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they're, they're, you're not going to wipe them all out. Like, there's going to be more. There's going to be bugs. Um, but reducing the surface of attack is really important. And, um, and the V2V plan has no, has no kind of security protocols or mandates built into it. And I, 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 in doing the research for the uh, for our interview today, I, I did run across something called the Security and Privacy in Your Car Act, or the SPY Act. It's uh, being put forward by Senators Edward uh, Markey from Massachusetts and Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut. Uh, it sounds like they've been trying to put this out for a couple of years, but it sounds like it's honestly, it was directly to address the, the kind of issues you brought up in your article. So there is some hope um, that the, the legislators are getting on board with this and trying to trying to come up with some other you know, some regulations around this sort of thing, because I, you know, that's, that's the, that to me, that is the area where the government needs to, to step in. That That's why we have a government to, mm-hmm. to lay down these well, sorts of laws. Hopefully NHTSA doesn't undermine their efforts completely by mandating V2V with no privacy and hmm. security protections. Yes. Um, but yeah, this is just something that needs a lot of of attention going forward, especially because, as you said, the the Jeep hacking incident just was one example um, of how vehicle manufacturers manufacturers have been relatively unsophisticated compared to other players in the IT industry. So, as I always like to do, as I toward the end of the segments like these, is I like mm-hmm. I like to give people as as much. Uh, hope and 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 cause something something they can actually do whenever possible. So, uh, from a consumer, first of all, just from a plain old consumer perspective, right now, how would you advise the average consumer to to research these things, to take these things into account? Do I have to? Do I know if the car that I'm purchasing purchasing has this technology in it? Maybe even latent technology that might be enabled later. Is there are there any kind of standards around these things that I could look at and say, well, this car is good, that car is bad? How do I? How, how would I know? as a consumer, how to make choices now, now that I know this, how to make choices about vehicles I may purchase. I'm not sure which car manufacturers are actually starting to move forward with V2V technology. Um, cause of course some could start doing it, um, without a mandate. Right. So mm-hmm. looking into that, not buying a car with this in it until, um, the privacy and security issues have not been resolved. So, even assuming those are resolved, they aren't yet. So you should definitely not buy a car with this in it yet. So just making sure when you're purchasing a smart car, a connected car, to understand what's actually in it and um, try to consult with experts or people who know this information before you purchase it, not just assume it's good based on who's ever telling you in front of you. You're going to have to do a little bit more research you're going to have to read the privacy policies. Mm. Um, <laughs> Which we know everybody's is, going to do. Yeah, of course not. Um, <laughs> but but generally, if you're concerned about V2V, I think um, there's a lot of organizations that have filed comments, including EFF, opposing it. So I think like making sure on the mailing list of all these organizations, I think um, CDT and EFF are two organizations that submitted comments. Um, what was the first one? When there's... Uh, CDT, Center for Democracy and Technology, ah, they okay. submitted comments as well. As well. Um, and the comment period right now is over, but there's going to need to be more if this is going to go forward. So I think just staying up to date with what's going on, I mean, this is all related to privacy and security in general. So EFF has a mailing list or a, a um, 
uh, newsletter? newsletter. I'm not sure. I don't think it's bi-weekly. I think it's it's like kind of inconsistent, but it's not too much. But we send out messages when it's time that to sign a petition or to submit comments. Um, so you'll get messages from us when it's really important, um, when it's something that you might care about. So That's the effector mailing list, I think? Yeah, exactly, the effector mailing list. And yeah. you can do that at EFF.org. Um, we also have a great blog that talks about information. So I think it's just staying up to date, getting cued in with these organizations that are paying attention because they're doing the work for you, right? So yes. we do a lot of research. We try to make our blog really understandable for everyone. And we also have um, an intake coordinator info at EFF.org if you have questions or um, are having trouble with something or an issue that that we could potentially help with. So. Well, that's fantastic. And that, and honestly, what I end up telling most people is that there are groups out there that are doing these things for you. So all you really need to do is give them money So and pay, yeah. atten- and pay attention. Yeah, so, join, you can join EFF too. We have around uh, 36,000 members across the country. So you can join in in that group of people who care and are concerned and want to do something about their privacy and security. Well, absolutely. I will recommend that everybody do that. We will, I will provide links on the show notes on the website for this for, so you could go and do that. I, uh, as I often do, if there's, if there's any sort of a link I can give you that will let you directly submit um, comments, it sounds like that's not available currently, but when that time comes, I will try to do that. And maybe we can have you back as, you, as this, as this uh, situation develops. And there, yeah, if there's definitely. anything new, we can, we can talk about the, the stuff that's coming up. So, Jamie, thank you very much for coming on and, and uh, helping us out to figure out what all this B2B stuff is and why it matters. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And now it's time for the tip of the week. This is going to be a new segment where I take the feedback and the information you guys are already sending me at Parker at americaoutloud.com. You can keep that coming. And also uh, what I find most interesting in the week or things you need to know. Uh, and just general good computer and internet hygiene and safety tips. And I'm going to bring you one solid tip every week that gives you something you can act on. So every week you can come back and you'll be a little bit safer safer than you were last week. These tips can also be, uh, many of them can be found in my book, uh, strangely enough, also called Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You can find that on Amazon.com. The book is over 300 pages and over 100 tips. Uh, on how to keep yourself safe, you and your family. It's a great book to give away to other people who may, may be new to computers. And it's written just like this podcast. It's written in a style that it's very entertaining and informative and not with a lot of jargon and explains everything and gives you plenty of pictures and step-by-step instructions. Uh, perfect for giving to people uh, with new computers or who, who need to learn how to keep their computers safe, which is basically all of us. So tip of the week, we're going to be talking about uh, how to protect your computers and other devices in your home that have a hard drive. And that is with a UPS. And I don't mean the United Parcel Service. I mean an uninterruptible power supply, a UPS. Basically, a UPS is a, is a big battery. Uh, you plug it into the wall, and then you plug your, uh, your sensitive devices into the UPS. And what that UPS does is, does well, it does a couple things. First of all, it's a surge protector on steroids. So it smooths out any kind of weird glitches in your power. And that can actually be really harsh on computers and things with, uh, with hard drives in them. Because if, uh, if, they're, if your computer is trying to save data to the hard drive and there's a power glitch, that can completely corrupt the data. 
Uh, it's also just harsh on uh, many elect electronic components. So um, what the, the same kind of reasoning behind putting a surge protector on something is a similar reason, reasoning why you might want to hook it up to a UPS. But a UPS, an uninterruptible power supply, also has the advantage of it's basically a big battery. So let's say if they're doing a lot of construction in your neighborhood or for whatever reason you're just, you've got flaky power, there's a lot of um, uh, flickers and things like that, that can be really harsh on your electronics and can be very bad for desktop computers and things like game consoles and, and, and other devices that have hard drives in them. Because if those hard drives are spinning while that, and, and trying to write data while that happens, it could be very bad. So buy yourself an uninterruptible power supply, a UPS. You can buy these on Amazon. You can buy these at your favorite big box electronic stores. And what they really are, it, it's, they're big and they're heavy. Most of them are lead-acid batteries, like the kind that's in your car. Uh, they're very big and heavy. Um, but the the bigger they are or the more power rating, and they, 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 they're rated by VAs or volt amps, uh, the bigger that number, the better. It's kind of hard to say how long any individual thing will last with a, when connected to a, to a battery like that. But the nice thing with computers in particular is you not only plug the computer into the UPS so that when the power goes out, the computer can keep running while the power is out because it's running off battery instead of running off the wall. Uh, you can also connect that uh, to your computer with the UPS cable. So the UPS will actually say, hey, computer, I know you don't see a power interruption because I'm giving you battery power. But I'm giving you battery power right now. So slow down. Don't stop what you're doing. Save all your data. And I'll let you know when I'm just about out of battery because when I when, when that goes, then you're I'm gonna lit, almost literally pull the plug on you. So that basically gives a heads up to the computer and gives the computer a chance to save its data, take care of business, and cleanly shut down uh, before the power goes out. Um, that, that, that in itself is a wonderful feature. Now, obviously you really only need this for desktop computers. So if you've got a laptop, your laptop's got a built-in battery. So pulling it at the, pulling the power out of the wall is not going to have any effect. Um, but for desktop computers and things like game consoles and that have a built-in hard drive or your DVR, your home DVR, these are the kind of things that you should be putting on a UPS. Uh, you might need to buy multiple of them because you might need to kind of spread them through the house. You can get them as cheap as, you know, 40 bucks and they won't last too long. They'll last a little bit. Those will be good for smoothing out power glitches and things. But if you need something that's going to last a little bit longer, uh, get one of the really big honking ones that unfortunately will cost you probably over a hundred bucks, but it's well worth the investment, especially if you might screw up some of your data in the process. Um, you got summer's coming up. we got storm season coming. So you're going to have those glitches when the lightning strikes. Uh, not only will this thing protect these devices uh, in a power surge sense, it will also give you power briefly uh, anywhere from, depends on how big this is and how much uh, juice your computer draws, but it may be given another 10 minutes or 15 minutes, depending on how much time you're spending on your computer or how much time you need to spend. And like I said, the really nice thing about computers in particular is it will give your computer a signal and say, hey, uh, you've been on battery for a while and my battery's about out, so you better shut down cleanly. That's, that's a good thing. The other really interesting thing that you can use a UPS for, which you might not have considered, is just because your power's out doesn't mean your internet service provider is out. So your, if you use like a Vonage phone system or uh, your cable modem and things like that, if you put your cable modem and your Wi-Fi router and... Um, your Vonage box, if you put all those on a UPS, there's a good chance you can still use the internet uh, and your Vonage-type phone system or your, your cable-based phone system even when the power is out. You can sort of think of, like a, of UPS as almost having a mini generator. It doesn't last very long and it doesn't power very much, but sometimes that's all you need. So again, when a storm hits, let's say you, you're, you forgot to charge up your phone. 
this UPS will help you charge up your phone. It's just a big battery, so there's nothing wrong with plugging plugging your phone into this thing as well, and you can charge your phone back up, charge your other devices back up as well. So it's a great thing to have uh, with summer storm weather approaching. So the obvious question now is, Carrie, which one should I buy? Well, instead of telling you, uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes uh, that takes you to a website called The Wire Cutter. And if you haven't heard of these guys yet, I highly recommend you give them a look. Anytime you need to buy something, um, they've got some really great reviews, very in-depth, and they just kind of cut through all of the stuff and say, here, this is the best one. And after much testing, uh, this is the this is why we believe it's the best one. You can read that if you'd like. Uh, they also have, if money is no object, here's a step up. Or sometimes if you need to save money, here's a step down. But uh, here, are the be- here are the best ones. Just kind of cuts to the chase. And then if you want to read all the details, you're welcome to read those down below. Uh, but if you're if you're ever in, in the market for some sort of piece of electronics or something like that, especially with Father's Day coming up, maybe you want to buy a good gift. Uh, these This site has great reviews. Uh, give those guys a look. So check the show notes and uh, look for a link to that article. Uh, it'll, it'll give you all the information you need and cut right down to the one that uh, they believe is the best one for you to get. And that's going to do it this week for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Tune in again next week. We've got some more great guests coming up and some good topics for you. We're going to be talking about VPNs coming up soon, what they are and why you need one and how to pick one. Of course, I will keep you in touch with the news and all the things that you need to know and making sure I explain it in a way that all makes sense. And we will be wrapping up the episodes with another tip of the week next week designed to give you some actionable stuff to keep your computer safe and guard your online privacy. Be sure to go to the website uh, for the podcast. You can find links there to stuff that I talked about in the show, uh, things that were harder for me to talk about and easier for you to just click the link and go check it yourself. You can also find all my social media stuff. You can find links to the book. You can find links to the newsletter. So if you want a bonus tip every week, sign up for the newsletter. That's also free, and I won't give out your address to anybody else. So that's yet another way to get a nice little tip of the week for your security and safety. But if you want over 100 tips all at once and you don't don't have the patience to wait for those weekly, uh, pick up the book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons on Amazon.com. Well over 100 tips in there. Uh, covers both Mac and PC, as well as iOS and Android. Uh, not just for you, but your, for your family and your kids as well. There's lots of great tips in there. Maybe not even for you, maybe a gift for somebody else or both. So check out the book, check out me on social, check me out on social media, and uh, tune in again next week. We'll have more great information for you. And as always, folks, until then, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Stay safe. I will talk to you again next week. Bye.